Good morning, everyone. You beautiful people out there. First of all, I want to read you a couple paragraphs out of the new book from... uh, This is called Hope for Today. It's the newest piece of Al-Anon literature, and it was written for and by adult children of alcoholics. And I can tell you for the few short weeks I've had it, there's a lot of good reading in here. And a couple paragraphs that caught my eye in this morning or today's reading. Through prayer and meditation, I developed a warm and comforting relationship with God as I understand him. Sitting still gave me time to listen to myself. I sat quietly and explored my mind and heart. I asked my higher power to speak to me in the silence and reveal what he wanted of me today and in the difficult months to come. As always, my Al-Anon program did not disappoint me. The prayer and meditation suggested in Step 11 helped me hear my higher power's voice within. Prayer and meditation helped me to know myself and in doing so helped me to discern my higher power's will for my life. Now, our literature just really has such beautiful stuff in it. It's just to me, it's awesome the way that it's been written and the way that uh, all the stuff that it has in it. And I'm very thankful to Al-Anon and the program for all that's there and for the AA program, too. I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me and for the lovely fruit basket and the case of water that absolutely drove my husband nuts yesterday. Why did they give you a case of water? Why did they give you a... Just say thank you and then give him a beer for it. <laughs> but he insists. He says, I want to know why they gave you water. <laughs> Today we have a good time. And it's only with us both being in the program that we have the life that we have Um, my early life, you know, was involved around alcoholism. Gay talked about being surrounded by alcoholics, and I can really relate to that. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic home. Both of my grandfathers were alcoholic. My mother's alcoholic. I get various aunts and uncles and cousins. You know, the people are just all over the place. Can't can't get away from them. (laughs) Just go with the flow. Uh, Of course, I did not realize that this was what a big part of my life was. I grew up in it, and I thought everybody lived like that. That was normal. That was just part of life and living. You know, and after I came in the doors of Al-Anon, I heard somebody say, well, I'm grateful I'm married to an alcoholic. And I thought, God, that person's loony. They really are. You know, and then after I got into things in my inventory and everything, and I got to looking at my past life, it was full of alcoholics. Always had been. Always. Did not change. You know, and you just... I evolved from one to the other, 
that's all I was doing. Um, found out after I got in, I, one of the biggest resentments I had was against the United States Army. And I thought, now wait a minute, you suppose have resentments against little things and little... But I realized that I blamed them for taking my father away from me. Because you see, he was killed in World War II when I was only a year and a couple months old. And I thought they were the reason. But you know, in doing my inventory, in researching, in going back through my life, I realized that what my grandmother had said. She said father had been a conscientious objector. He really did not want to go. You know, so it was by his choice. He said, I have a duty to my country. I have to go. You know, so I had to let that go. Um, Growing up as I did, uh, my grandfather was very big influence because I was living in their home. And the only fellow that I ever had anything to do with that he approved of, I thought, well, he signed the paperwork for me to get married to this guy. This would be good. You know, and it wasn't until after I got in Al-Anon I realized he was a product of alcoholic parents. You know, he had all the isms. Now, he never did drink, but I tell you what, there was enough of the crazies in our relationship, in our marriage, the six years we were married, that, you know, he might as well have. You know, he might as well have picked up drink and drink. Uh, the fighting and everything, you know. And by the time I got out of that marriage, I turned around and married Dan, my alcoholic today. And it's just, like I say, evolving, going from one to the other. You know, I'd had a son by my first husband, and uh, of course, when I left, I took him with me, and Dan took him on. Dan's like, you know, it's okay. This is good. You know, I can handle that. I want a, I want a house full of kids. That's what he told me. <laughs> Until after we had our first one, <laughs> that took care of that. <laughs> He says, um, I didn't know it was going to be like this. <laughs> because Michael was a holy terror. He was a true Michael. And that kid still, you know, at uh, 32 years old now, he still has not stopped. That kid is still on a roll, you know. And I was real concerned about him there for a while because Dan came, he said one day, when we were living at Pensacola, and he said, do you know that Michael and his friends over there in that apartment they're in are making bathtub beer? <laughs> now, I had heard of bathtub gin from watching the movies, right? That was from back in the old days. Never heard of anybody making bathtub beer. And I'm like, okay. You know, somewhere along the line, though, he's let go of that. Thank you, God. And, uh, but I think he's married a little gal that's uh, practicing for one of the programs. Uh, and we found out some good news the other day. They're going to make us grandparents next February. So thank you, God, for that. And, uh, um, the oldest one, Jimmy, uh, had a child out of wedlock. So we have one granddaughter at uh, Pensacola. And we don't get to see her that often. But when the youngest one got married last year, the oldest one had gone by and picked her up and brought her over to the wedding. And she gets around by my husband, and I didn't know this till a long time afterwards. 
and she says, do you know I am your biological granddaughter? <laughs> I've never heard anybody really put it like that before, but somebody somewhere along the line and she picked up on it. You know, we don't have the contact with her that I would like, but, you know, that's okay too because I know that, that through the grace of God she's going to be okay also. Uh, Michael was a biker, the youngest son, and he used to, you know, where they have the ramp and they got the 20-inch bike and they go up in the air and they do the tricks and all. He did that, you know. And I'm like, yeah, a product of his father. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, then, when he finally retired after 20 years in the Navy, uh, one Mother's Day weekend, he had a heart attack, his first heart attack. Now, I've lost track since then. I don't know whether it's eight or ten or however many heart attacks he's had, but it's been a series of those, and open heart surgery twice and on and on. And I know today, anytime he starts walking towards me and he makes this statement, I hate to tell you this, but I know I am in trouble. I know we're, we're headed for the hospital or the emergency room. Uh, the first time, no, the second time, that we wound up at the emergency room. Uh, the boys had been in there. I was helping them with their homework, and he'd come in. He'd, this was back still in his drinking days. And uh, I took him to the emergency room, and that doctor come out of the back. And I mean, I got, this guy was about as big around as he was tall. And he was bouncing out there, and he says, do you have any idea how much alcohol he has in him? And I'm like, well, no, I wasn't with him. And he says, my God, he's got so much alcohol in him, he could have died not even knowing it. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, and I think he was really upset with me that I was taking it so nonchalantly. But, you know, it was part of the everyday life as far as I was concerned. Um, so they got him admitted. And he continued to drink and was still drinking even through the first round of open heart surgery. And it wasn't until after that that uh, he finally, he kept going around saying, I've got to quit. I've got to do something about this. This is just um, too much. And he'd heard of AA somewhere. And I, if I'd ever heard the term Al-Anon, I did not know it. It didn't register. And I thought, okay, um, whatever, why don't you just go ahead and do it? You know, if you're going to do it, do it. Well, we wound up, or I wound up one night at his mom and dad's, and we got to talking. Now, Dan was the type that when I met him, one of the things that impressed me was when he talked about his parents, it was mommy and daddy. And I wasn't used to a 30-some-year-old man calling him mommy and daddy. That's a term that little kids use, not, not a grown-up adult. And as we sat there and talked, his dad told me, he says, you know, he says, we're just going nowhere but down, down, down. Because he said, he told me that it was none of my business and to leave his life alone. 
And I'm like, that's not like Dan. That's, that's not good. And so I picked up the phone that night and called the AA answering service. And I got the operator on the telephone, and she says, I have a member of AA here. Would you like to talk with him? And I said, sure. This will be good. And he came on the phone finally, and he told me, he says, you cannot make him stop drinking. You cannot do anything about his drinking. He has to be the one that wants to do something about his drinking. And he told me where the next meeting was that was coming up. And I went that night. And I got a warm, fuzzy feeling in those rooms. I thought, this is where I need to be. Because I had so much hate and discontent and misery inside me by that time. When I read the first step, I said, well, I'm not the one with the drinking problem. He is. And that, that I couldn't relate to. But when I got to the point where it said my life was unmanageable, that definitely hit home. I knew my life was unmanageable. The crazy things that happened all the time, that was it. You know, and I did something the next evening. I went home and I gave him an ultimatum. Now, one meeting, you're not going to hear normally that you don't give a sick person an ultimatum unless you are ready to face the circumstances, the consequences that go along with it. And, you know, I really don't know in my heart today what would have happened if he had not done what I, what I said. But I had called him in, and I called the oldest son in because they were all time fighting. And I said, the crap around here is going to quit. I said, I don't care what you do. I went to Al-Anon last night. And you either join AA or whatever you want to do. But I said, I'm tired and sick of it. Neither the stuff stops or I'm leaving. You know, and I was no more prepared to follow through with what I said than anything. But he knew I did not normally make idle threats. He knew I didn't normally say things like that. And I know today, too, he was ready. He was ready to take that step. You know, thank God. Our higher powers were with us, both of us. He was working in our life, even though we had long since left him, you know. Um, we went stop by his mom and dad's for that next meeting before we went. And because his mom had said, well, I want to help my Danny. She says, we want to do this thing together. And I said, okay. Now, this is from a lady whose nickname was the Martini Lady. Yeah. But you know, that lovely lady, when she passed away, had 10 years in AA. And she was really grateful for the program. She didn't drive, but my father-in-law took her to the meetings all the time. And he'd either sit at the back of the room or he'd walk around someplace outside or whatever, you know. But he faithfully took her to meetings as long as he was alive. Um, I got to tell you, back in Dan's drinking days, there was one point in time where the two of us were going out and find him. We didn't normally get in the car and go looking for him. I mean, if he's drinking, he was out drinking. 
But he'd been gone this one time, as well as I can remember, about three days. And we were getting concerned. And Do you have any idea how many bars there are in Pensacola? I mean, there's a lot of them. And I don't know where all we thought we were going to go. But we were headed for the door, and the phone rang. And this lady on the other end was a bartender up around the house from where we lived. And she says, Hetty, she says, um, I don't mean to alarm you, and I don't want you to get real concerned. She says, and I don't know, she says, how he got here because he doesn't have his car with him. But Dan's here, and we think you need to come get him. <laughs> well, I get up there, and he's sitting at a table with another guy. And, of course, he hasn't shaved, so he's, he's looking real scruddy. I mean, and he's got this red clay stuff matted in his hair on this side. In his ear, I mean, this whole side over here has that red clay stuff all over. And I'm looking at him and I thought, don't even ask. You know, it's, it's not worth it at this point in time. Um, you know, of course, he, you know, Pat answered, do you want to have a drink? You know, sit down. You know, well, we did. We sat down. You know, we get to talking to him. And I said, um, where's your car? And he said, I don't know. Well, okay. Did you get a ticket? Oh, yeah. Got a ticket. I said, where is your ticket? So he goes to feeling his pockets and searching. And he says, I don't find it. But he says, I got a ticket. I know I did. He says, I must have left it in the car. And I said, and, and where's the car? Well, it's at some garage. Okay, where? Well, I says, I think it's down off of Fairfield someplace. I said, and you think you left the ticket in there? I said, what was it for? He said, I don't know. He says, I remember the flashing lights. I said, okay. There was flashing lights, Okay. So I said, it's okay. I said, well, go find your car tomorrow. He said, okay. So I got him home. The next day, we get out on Fairfield, and we're driving down through there. And I said, does anything? No, no. He says, must be down on the other end. You know, so we keep driving and keep looking. And he says, well, you know, he says, I think maybe I had my accident around in here someplace. I'm like, Okay. We get down to almost the other end, almost completely. You got less than a half a block left of Fairfield Drive. And he says, my car is over there at that garage. I said, okay. So we pull in over there, and sure enough, his car is sitting over there in that lot. And the front end, you know, this little metal post they have along the side of the road, he apparently had driven his car over one of them. And the only thing we could find in that car was a towing ticket. And I said, are you sure the police were, there, were called? Are you sure they were there? Well, no, I'm not really sure. He says, I remember the flashing lights. I said, okay. So we finally came to the conclusion that he did not get a ticket. The police apparently were not involved. And the only thing we had to do was... Uh, pay, I think it was close to $400, get his car fixed and get it back out of there. You know, it's situations and circumstances like that that you know you really are where you need to be when you get to these rooms. 
the stories and the times that go on and on and on and on. Um, you know, I was thankful that both my boys went to Alateen. Uh, they know what the program's about. They know where it is. You know, no matter what happens with them. Um, you know, they've got it from coming at them from both sides of the family. So, you know, we've talked with both of them and told them they've got a pretty good chance of, of winding up in these rooms too. Uh, but at least they know what the help is and where it is, you know, and God is in charge of that. Um, the oldest one, sometime after we got in the program, we were having this massive discussion on Saturday morning. And my pet thing before the program was always, when I was going to discipline them, was to grab the fly swatter. Now that little rubber end on the fly swatter was good to smack them on the ends of butts, you know. Well now, he'd already gotten to where he was taller than I was. And he's over there just carrying on. And so I reached for the fly swatter. That old habit had kicked in. And he sees me reaching for it. And he starts to run. He heads for his bedroom. And he didn't get there quick enough. I was right behind him. And I got in the door. And I've got the fly swatter in my hand and he's looking at me and he just reaches over and scoffs that thing out of my hand. And he stands there and I think we were both in total disbelief. And he says, oh shit. And he dropped the fly swatter and he looked at me and he says, you know mom, he says, I'm a little too big for you to do that to anymore. And I said, you know, Jimmy, I said, you're right. I said, and it'll be okay. I'll not do that. But I said, no, that, that you need to take care of things. And he said, yes, Mommy says, you're right. And he says, I'll take care of things. You know. And that, thank you, God, was the last time I ever reached for the fly swatter. But it's in working the program and then it's keeping it going. You know. I used to, before the program, and I... When I ever started it, I have absolutely no idea, but I got to the point where when I got to the end of our street, I would look down the street to see if his car was there. If his car was there, okay, I could relax. If it wasn't there, I figured he's out drinking somewhere. That little gnawing inside, you know. And then I realized, this is something I need to work on. I need to get rid of this obsession of getting to the end of the street every evening and looking for that car. And I started working the program on that. And you know, I don't know exactly when it left, but it finally left. I no longer was looking for his car. It was not an important thing in life for me to be doing, was to look for his car. Um, after a while, of course, I had I found the need to change sponsors. And you know, when I got to looking for a sponsor, I was having a difficult time and finally it hit me. I remembered one lady that I mean, she was the epitome of peace. And I looked at her and I remembered seeing her just strolling across the floor and I thought, that is what I want. That is what I need. And I thought, oh, she'll, she'll tell me no. She'll tell me no. You know. Because it'd take me a couple times, first go around, before I found somebody. And I thought, I want to get told no again. 
And then I, desperation set in and I thought, okay. And so I went to her. She said, why, sure. You know, and she's still my sponsor today. You know, I still have that loving person in my life. Um, my mother, like I mentioned before, she was you know, a good alcoholic too. Um, she watched us in the program for about four years. I just kept sharing our experience, strength and hope with her. And finally, one New Year's Day, she called on the phone and she says, Hattie, she says, I can't continue to go like this. She says, I've got to do something about my drinking. And she went into a treatment center. And she went to AA for a while, and then she decided it wasn't for her anymore. And she's quit going to AA, but she's not drinking, and she's been sober now for about 12 years. Thank God. She still has some brothers and sisters that uh, every so often she picks up the phone and, and says, I need to talk to you about so-and-so, she said. And, uh, and that's okay. And today we can talk to one another and have a good, loving relationship. And it's only through coming to these rooms that we can do that. Um, somebody told me early on that... Um, when you get to the point where you can laugh at yourself, that you will feel better about yourself. And I'm like, okay. Well, one morning I was up and I was in there getting ready to go to work. And I got, my makeup was all on, the hair's last, right? And I get the mousse in my hand and I go to put it in my hair. Well, that mousse came out of my hand down across my face, I had mascara and makeup just smeared on the side of my face. And I'm standing there looking at this mess, and I, I cracked up. Dan's still in the bedroom asleep, you know, and I woke him up because I was laughing so hard. And he says, what are you doing in there? And I was laughing so hard that I, I couldn't tell him at the time. I mean, because it was, it was such a mess. So I had to take my makeup off totally and start all over again but I thought this is what they mean by being able to laugh at yourself you know and this is good and you know there's been other instances that this has happened since then and as a matter of fact not too long ago just recently I was up one morning and I hadn't turned the light on out in front of the mirror and I was like I'm standing there and I'm half asleep yet and I've got that stick makeup, and I've got that stick, and I'm, I'm going at it all over the face, you know. And I'm looking, and I'm squinting, and I thought, gee, that looks awful dark this morning. So I turned the light on, and here I had my blush in my hand instead of the makeup. And I looked like I was getting ready to go on the war path. So I had to stop that morning and take that all off and start over again, so... You know, it's things like that today that, hey, I can relax and I can enjoy myself. You know, the old days I'd have been so mad at myself, you know, and I'd have carried that with me for God knows how long, you know. And I don't have to do that today. And I don't have to be like that. Um, early on, after we got in the doors of the program, I guess it was a little over a year, 
the gals from my group talked me into going into service work. And I can't say enough for service work. It hits. You know, left to my own devices, until that desperation set in, I would never have walked into a room full of strangers, let alone ever having ever been up here. That was just not what I would do. But you know, it's in doing that and all that I can actually come in these rooms and I can come up here and do this. And I can feel comfortable, comfortable with me inside and who I am and feel much better about things. And I know today that that's where I have to keep it. For a while there, I got burned out and I backed off from the program, I backed off from going to meetings, I backed off from service. And I was the loser in that. I'm the one that has to keep my program in place. I have to keep in contact with my sponsor. I have to keep going to meetings. I have to keep doing the things that I need to do for me. We had um, one point in time over in Pensacola, they were having uh, the AA Big Book Study. Joe and Charlie's big book study, and I know some of you in here probably have attended one of them. And we went that evening, that first evening, and then when we got ready to leave, some of them were going to go to Shoney's afterwards. And I said, do you want to go? And so he was going back and forth, yeah, I want to go. No, I don't want to go. So finally we're headed for the door. And he says, no, he says, I don't want to go. I said, okay, I'll wait till I get home to go to the bathroom. He said, okay. Well, we get in the car. Yes, I do want to go. Okay, we'll go. So we get inside the door, and I looked at him. I said, i got to go to the bathroom. So I go in there. And I'm in the stall, and I'm not paying any attention to things. I'm doing, and they're doing my thing. And when I open the door to my stall, the person next to me opens the door to his stall. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. Now, the thing of it was, it was Charlie. (laughs) was the guy doing the program (laughs) and we neither one of us lets on like there is anything wrong absolutely nothing wrong we're (laughs) carrying on this conversation did you have a nice trip in you know are you enjoying the program yeah oh yeah (laughs) I mean just just like we're out someplace else you know well, we get out in the middle where everybody's waiting to be seated, and the two of us look at each other and just crack up, you know. And he says, he says, well, he says, I came in with Barbara. He says, I assumed she knew where she was going. She'd been here before. She went to the right, so I assumed I was going to the left, and that's where I went, you know. It became quite a, a joke for a long time, I'll tell you. <laughs> but he, he came to me the next morning at the thing, and he says, "You ready to go back to the bathroom together?" 
And I said, that's okay. I think I'll pass. And he says, okay. Uh, but the crazy things like that. You know, this one guy comes to me later and he says, I thought when you got in the programs and you got in this, these rooms that crap like that quit happening to people. And I said, well, whoever told you that told you a lie. <laughs> he says, well, that's obvious. He says, and I'm going to remember this. He said, I'm going to pay attention to what I'm doing. I said, good, good. And, uh, and the thing of it is, you know, you can laugh at things like this today. You know, and it's good. You know, and you can do it without all the worries and stuff. You know, I, and I, when Dan first started telling me, when, when I would ask him where he'd been or whatever, and he'd say, I don't know and I don't remember, and I thought, nah, everybody knows where they've been, everybody remembers this stuff, blah, blah. You know, and one day we were having a conversation, and the very next day we were having the very same conversation. He really didn't know, he didn't remember. You know, and that's when I really knew that he really, when he told me he didn't know, he really did not know. You know, and at least today we don't have to go around like that. We had, um, oh, just within the last few weeks, he says to me, because he's taken over the kitchen. Kitchen's his, and I don't even go in there now. Uh, he does the meals and things, and a lot of times he'll call at work and say, what do you want for supper tonight or whatever. You know. But he says, um, I want to do something. He says, I want you to help me. I said, okay, we'll go in the kitchen do it together. So we're in there, and we're going backwards and forwards. And it's getting a little heated. <laughs> and he says, you know, he says, I don't like the way you're telling me what to do. <laughs> I said, you ask, and he turns around, and looks at me, and we both start laughing. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. So the stuff is still there, but it's what what we choose to stop and do with it then that will impact our lives and whether or not we tend to be happy or not. You know, uh, left to my own devices, I wouldn't be on the job I am today. I wouldn't have taken on the responsibility. I'd have been too chicken. Hey, I'm not not getting into that. You know. But I use this program every day in my life. One of our functions in my office is to mediate landlord-tenant complaints. And you know, I find that I can use this program a lot in that function. So I just can't say enough about it. It's there, and we're the losers if we don't use it and do what we have to do with it. Um, the boys are both, like I say, the one's going to make us grandparents this next year. The other one... What I finally have said is he has a thing about women with three children. <laughs> He is now on his second one. You know, and Dan and I didn't think it was too fair of him. He he brings this woman and the three kids, you know, and we get wrapped up in these kids, and then all of a sudden they're gone. 
Dan's like, I don't want to get involved with this next one. He says, I, he says, this is not what I want to do. He says, I want one that's going to stay there. I said, you know, we've got no control over that. We've just got to go with the flow and love them and give them the love and support and help that we can. And so now we've got another three there ready-made. Uh, a little girl and two boys. And so that's all we can do now is do the best that we can to help them as much as we can. And the other one, and like I said, the other one, his wife, we think is practicing for the program. So maybe one of these days she'll get here and maybe she won't. But that's between her and her higher power and not us. I would like to close with something from the Al-Anon book in As We Understood. It's my favorite. After I got in the program, I realized that I had left the contact, all contact I'd had with my higher power. And as I was trying to get back into it, they had come out with this little spiritual book and going through it, this is my favorite out of the book. It says, Dear God, I am powerless and my life is unmanageable without your help and guidance. I come to you today because I believe that you can restore and renew me to meet my needs today. Since I cannot manage my life or affairs, I have decided to give them to you. I put my life, my will, my thoughts, my desires and ambitions in your hands. I give you all of me, the good and the bad, the character defects and shortcomings, my selfishness, resentments and problems. I know that you will work them out in accordance with your plan. Such as I am, take and use me in your service. Guide and direct my ways and show me what to do for you. I cannot control or change my friends or loved ones, so I release them into your care for your loving hands to do with as you will. Just keep me loving and free from judging them. If they need changing, God, you'll have to do it. I can't. Just make me willing and ready to be of service to you. To my shortcomings, to have my shortcomings removed and to do my best. Help me to see how I have harmed others and make me willing to make amends to them. Keep me ever mindful of thoughts and actions that harm myself and others and which separate me from your light, love, and spirit. And when I commit these errors, Make me aware of them and help me to admit each one promptly. I am seeking to know you better, to love you more. I am seeking the knowledge of your will for me and the power to carry that out.